is Our American Stories. And on this day in history, a legendary jazz recording that changed American music history took place in New York City. Here's Jesse with the rest of the story. You're listening to the 1938 Benny Goodman Carnegie Hall Jazz Concert recorded this day in history in 1938. This instrumental track called Don't Be That Way was the opening of the set. Benny Goodman was an American jazz and swing musician, clarinetist, and bandleader known as the King of Swing. In the mid-1930s, Goodman led one of the most popular musical groups in America. His concert at Carnegie Hall in New York City on January 16, 1938 is described as the single most important jazz or pop concert in history, like the Jazz Coming Out Party to the world of respectable music. Goodman's bands launched the careers of many major jazz artists during an era of racial segregation. He led one of the first well-known integrated jazz groups. Goodman performed nearly to the end of his life while exploring an interest in classical music. This legendary jazz concert by Benny Goodman is a two-disc LP of swing music first issued in 1950. Here's Benny Goodman on that 1950 release talking about the performance and the recording. You know, we didn't know the concert was being recorded at the time. We didn't find it out until afterwards. Two copies were made, one for me and one for the Library of Congress. I put mine away so carefully, I completely lost track of it for about 12 years. And then luckily, one of my daughters found it in the closet about a year ago. We had it edited, and Columbia put it out on records. And, of course, here you have the results. But let me tell you a little about it. That January 16th back in 1938 was a Sunday and a cold one. We didn't quite know what would happen, how we would sound, what the audience would think of us. Until they got there, we didn't even know how many people would be on hand. So we just went out and played. Our first number was Don't Be That Way, and you can hear the audience response in the record. That really made us feel good. The legend holds that the idea to present the Goodman Band in concert at Carnegie Hall began as a publicity stunt by Goodman's publicist. Certainly the idea of playing jazz at Carnegie was revolutionary because at the time, Carnegie Hall was a bastion of musical propriety. Or as jazz critic John McDonough put it, quote, An important house of old world traditions was snobby smirks toward American culture and a way of making status-sensitive Yankees feel like babbits for comparing Gershwin to Wagner or Tatum to Horowitz. Benny Goodman was initially hesitant about the concert, fearing that hot jazz would fall flat before audiences accustomed to classical music. Hollywood Hotel, Benny's most recent film at the time, opened to rave reviews. The giant lines of teenagers waiting outside Paramount gave Benny the confidence to actively pursue the Carnegie Hall concert with all his faculties. He canceled recording dates and insisted on holding rehearsals inside Carnegie Hall to familiarize the band with the special acoustics. The concert was held on the evening of January 16, 1938. It sold out weeks in advance with a capacity of 2,760 seats going for the top price of $2.75 a seat, a very high price at the time. The initial reaction of the audience, though polite, was a bit tepid. As the concert went on, things livened up. By the time the band got to the climactic piece, Sing 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 with a Swing... Success was assured. At this 
time in American history, recording technology was still in a fairly primitive state. Only three RCA 44BX microphones were used, one above the conductor's podium, and two others at ends of the band. The feed went off stage to a mixer, and then to a CBS truck in the alley. The engineers on site didn't control the sound mix, so the settings were the same for each song. There was no attempt to bring out individual soloists or to make adjustments appropriate to the unique nature of each song. From the truck, the feed was then sent by a broadcast-quality telephone line to the CBS Master Control Room downtown, who then patched it to a recording studio. There, the records were cut, but each was limited to 8 minutes, 45 seconds. In order to capture the entire live concert, two record-cutting turntables had to be set side-by-side and used in relay. After the Goodman Band and Quartet took over the stage and performed the instrumental numbers that had made them famous, the vocal by Martha Tilton on Locke Lohman provoked five curtain calls and cries for an encore. Oh, you take the high road and I'll take the low road, but I'll be in Scotland for you. For me and my true love may never meet again on the bonny, bonny banks of Loch Lomond. The encore forced Goodman to make his only audience announcement for the night, stating that they had no encore prepared, but that Martha would return shortly with another song. Sorry, we're not prepared for any encore, but we'll bring Martha back a little later. This 1938 concert is regarded as one of the most significant in jazz history. After years of work by musicians from all over the country, jazz had finally been accepted by mainstream audiences. Maybe now you have an idea of what our Carnegie Hall jazz concert was like. At least I think you should. We played a few of the numbers on the records to give you a cross-section. Tried to give you an idea of the feeling we had, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. And great job on that as always, Jesse. And by the way, that brings us to the Sinatra hour we did, where Sinatra talked about Benny Goodman and his importance. And Miles Davis, because that's a terrific hour as well. And we love to talk about and dig down deep into music of all, all kinds, crossing across, well, every variety, from classical, Rostropovich, straight through to our Billy Joel segment, Robert Plant, and Merle Haggard, my favorite. The hour we did on Merle was just so good. This is Lee Habib. This is our American Stories. This day in history, in 1938, Benny Goodman played Carnegie Hall.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And it's time for our series called The Founding, where we bring you the never-told stories of things we all love and how the heck they came to be. We brought you Home Depot's story, Walmart's, Myers, Ford's, Cancer Treatment Centers of America, and so many more. And today, our own Alex Cortez brings us the founding story of one of your favorite foods. At least it's one of Alex's. Take it away. A young man named Ralph F. Steyer dropped out of high school to work. To work to support his parents and his five younger siblings. It was the Great Depression. And he was just one month away from graduating. He married a girl named Alice, and they had nothing. Nothing but a dream that they were going to be successful. Their future son, Ralph C. Steyer, said they didn't know where their next meal was coming from, and they weren't going to live like that. So when the couple could, they saved $11,000 to be exact so that they could purchase a little sausage shop in, of all towns, Johnsonville, Wisconsin. Yes, that Johnsonville. And according to his son, one of those jobs where the father saved was skinning calves at a packing plant in Milwaukee. And he was good at it. Too good. He'd been in the union. He left the union because all the union guys, he was really good at his job and he could do three times what anybody else could do and they, they threatened his life. They said, we'll, we'll beat the shit out of you if, you if you keep this up. If his father worked too hard, they would have to work hard too or look bad and either option was unacceptable to them easier to do when you're not the one footing the bills and when his father became the one footing the bills in his small sausage operation with three stores and where his son was one of only seven people actually making the sausage he and his son got a feeling that the same people who physically threatened him would now be threatening them in another way. It was clear to us that if we didn't put in a pension or profit sharing plan or something, a retirement plan for our folks, we were going to wind up with a union. And almost no business of this size offers such benefits. They're usually just trying to survive and can't afford something like this that they'd actually want to do. But the two Ralphs knew what they had to do. After his dad's experience in a union, they weren't going to let that happen to their company. And in order to offer benefits like profit sharing, they had to change their business from a partnership to a corporation. And to avoid triggering massive taxes with this change, they split the partnership into two separate corporations, a retail-focused one with the shops that they owned and a wholesale-focused one that sold sausage to grocery stores. That was interesting because I'm sitting there with the accountant saying, well, we want to just split these up. And the accountant says, well, you know, I'm not comfortable with that. And we have Dudley Godfrey, who's a senior, senior Godfrey and Con, 150 lawyers in Milwaukee. And he's sitting there with us. He was our counsel, my mom and dad, and this accountant. And, oh, well, how about if we did this? Well, no, I'm not comfortable with that. Oh, okay. Well, how about this or that or this or that? 
I'm, I'm doing having dialogue. So, and you're 25. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm, I'm not comfortable with that either. I looked across the table and said, George, there's a limit to how comfortable I want you to be. You get it? I'm not here to make you comfortable. You're here to tell me how we can do this. And I'm telling you, my parents looked at me. This guy's an older guy. But I've had enough. And Dudley looked at me. You tell me how we can get it done. Yeah. So he said, well, if you really split these, and if you don't have anything to do with the retail, if you don't have anything to do with the retail, just a few folks in wholesale, your mom and dad do the retail, you can have a division like that. I think that it would pass. Fine. But that's what we we're talking about all along. But okay, good. I wanted to do wholesale. I didn't want to do it retail. Retail was a death. It was never going anywhere. At the same time, I said to my dad, Dad, we gotta tell these people what we're doing. They're employees. Let's just tell them so they know. We're doing it. We know we're gonna do it. Let's no, you don't say a word until it's done. Why, Dad? Well, because you never know. I said. Then we gotta, we should tell them we're doing it and uh, we should let them know we're doing it. We're working on it. We're f- f- finishing up the legal yeah. work. What's the harm of telling them? If we don't tell them, we're gonna have a union here, Dad. He said, no, you don't say a word. On Monday, the telegram came in from the union saying, we have, uh, we have met with your people. They've all signed cards and we're gonna come up to start the process of negotiating with you. Their gut was right. The union would make a move on their business and had already spoken with all of their employees without them knowing this. Well, we had an election and the union lost the elections. Nobody voted for them. And the NLRB said, you have unfair labor practices. You destroyed the uh, majority. We're setting the election aside. You still have to negotiate with them. And that was it for my dad. He was really upset. So we had this really sharp legal counsel. I said, we're going to appeal this. He said, don't appeal. If you appeal it and you lose, then the courts are going to be looking at you like a hawk. He says, you notice they said you have to negotiate. They didn't say you have to agree. Let's just negotiate for the next year and make sure you maintain your majority and they'll be powerless. So I spent a year negotiating, and my dad had nothing to do with it, and that was kind of the end of it for him. So the employees were already on our side. So finally, after a year, right at the end of the year, I said, I think you got a pretty good deal here. Why don't you take it to your membership? And uh, it was a terrible deal. <laughs> it was way less than what the guys were getting. So you presented them a proposal that was less than the employees were currently getting? Yeah, and, and, other, bad, and other bad stuff, too. And I said, Take it to your membership. And he had no membership, and I knew he had no membership. He turned purple. He turned purple. He was trying to control himself. He had a pipe. He used a pipe as a tool and kind of calm himself down. And so instead of saying anything, he got his pipe out, and he was going to light his pipe. He couldn't strike the match. <laughs> he turned purple. He was shaking so bad he couldn't strike the match. I'll never forget Richard Greenlaw. And, never forget uh, that name. Huh? And then. Uh, a few days later, we got a telegram saying that they've withdrawn their deal, which, which gave them the right to come back in a year. But they've never come back. And Johnsonville, by the way, was already facing some pretty tough obstacles, as all small businesses are. It turns out only half of new companies 
ever make it past the first five years, let alone 10, only a third make it to 10. By the way, people don't know this. When a guy saves up money or a family saves up money or a woman does to start that business, again, listen to that number. A third will survive the first 10 years. That means two-thirds are wiped out. And say you make it to becoming one of the largest companies. Let's take that just if. Your odds of staying there? Really low, too. Of the Fortune 500 companies in 1955, a mere 12% are still on that list. Many don't exist at all. By the way, have you ever heard of Armstrong Rubber? Of course not. But they were big. Neither have I. And by the way, that's just part of, well, creative destruction and old jobs going away, new jobs coming. And be grateful to live in a country like that because the countries where the same companies are always up there, you can guarantee they're coddled up to big government and you can guarantee that no new jobs are getting created and you can guarantee that the economy is terrible. And again, it is very difficult to be displaced from your job. There's nothing tougher. But imagine never being able to get a job because there are no new jobs. And so there are costs and there are benefits. And by the way, the two Ralphs, and we learned that there are two Ralphs, they not only face those headwinds, the difficulty of just staying alive, but also the one of theirs being a family-owned company, where when the second generation takes over, 70% of them fail. With Johnsonville, they only got stronger. And in 2015, Ralph Steyer, the second-generation owner, did something Well, it's difficult to do in a family-owned business. He's letting someone out of the family run the ship. When we talked to him, he said, look, this is a meritocracy. we got to find the best person. And he said he did. When we come back, the story of Ralph Steyer, the story of Johnsonville Sausage, a great American company, and for our money, the great sausage company in America, and the biggest sausage company in America, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we're back with our series, The Founding. This one on Johnsonville Sausage. And let's continue with Alex's conversation with its owner, Ralph C. Stair. And then Ralph told me about one of the other early characters in their business. There's so many people who do so many bad things in life, so many stupid, short-sighted things. They just hurt themselves. Yeah. And you just do things right all the time. It's amazing how it adds it. You can see, it adds up pretty well. <laughs> so this fellow, Donnie Sinkbein, they worked at my parents' store in Sheboygan on Saturday mornings. He also, during the week, drove a truck, this jobber, Gus Aholm, for Sheboygan Sausage Company, which was the big sausage company back then. 
That word jobber was a new one to me, so I looked it up and it's industry lingo for a person with a truck with a perishable item in it, like sausage, and they go around wholesaling it, selling it to retailers for cash. And Gus had two trucks. He was an older guy, he had a son, Richard Aholm, and then Donnie drove the other truck. And Gus always promised Donnie, when I retire, you're getting that truck, you're gonna be your own jobber. And so one Monday morning, Donnie came into work and the, the invoices used to say, Gus Alholm and son, it came in on Monday morning and it said, Richard Alholm. And Gus gave both businesses and Donnie was supposed to work with Richard. Well, Richard was not a very productive person. And Donnie says, I'll never work for that, Richard. So he came to my dad and me and said, would you back me if I wanted to go out on my own? You make great sausage. Would you back me if I want to? Heck yes, we will. So Donnie, he had enough money to buy a truck. And he had to wait for the truck, but he started delivering it <laughs> in a car or just a <laughs> Just a normal station wagon too. Oh yeah, yeah. I, was, I hate to, I shudder to think of how we used it in the business. And way back then it was different, you know. Oh yeah. He got in there and he said, put our sausage in and started selling. He was working it. Within a year, all the Sheboygan sausage was not only his route, the other route too. Richard Allen was out of business. Sheboygan sausage was out of business. And Johnsonville sausage was in business. Within a year. So if you think that God doesn't have a plan for it, if you want to say, oh, look how smart I was, look what I did, I'm here to tell you, there may, somebody might, there may be somebody out there that is that smart, but it sure as heck isn't me, all right? <laughs> yeah, you didn't plan that guy coming into your business. God had a plan. Right, we're only getting started, okay? <laughs> Donnie puts the sausage in the two stores in Fond du Lac, Century stores. Godfrey Company. They had 90 stores around the state. Wow. I always looked at those stores and thought, geez, wouldn't that be nice to be in there? I have no idea how to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so he puts this in there and it's doing great. And Harlan Crouch, Crouch Brothers, they had two stores. But the supervisor for Century Stores came in. He looked and he saw that he had our products in the deli department and in the meat department. And the supervisor says, well, we've got to fix this up. You can't have them in both places. You've got to have them either one or the other. And Harlan Crouch looked and he says, you see that name on there, Crouch Brothers, Century Stores? As long as that's on there, that product stays there because I make more money on that than anything else in the store. <laughs> They're kidding me. Oh, yeah? So they saved the invoices for a month, and the guy looked at how much sausage they were selling. He said, oh, my gosh. We don't do anything like this in any of our stores. Next thing we know, I have no idea this is going on. Nothing. And then we'll forget. The phone rings down the sausage kitchen. My dad picks up the phone. Yep, hello, huh? Okay. Yeah, I'm watching. I have no idea what's going on. Yep. Okay, you're sure? Yeah, oh, fine. Okay, whatever you sure. Yep, whatever you say. Glad to talk. Okay, no problem. Yep, okay, thank you. Hangs up the phone. I said, what was that? That was Jim Godfrey from Godfrey Company. They want to come up and see us about carrying our sausage. Huh? Really? Really? <laughs> When's he coming? When's he coming? He didn't say. 
did you ask him? I said, no. Four, five, four, so now for four or five days, I'm bugging my dad. Call him back and find out when they're coming. Call him back. And this is my dad. Let him call us. Don't appear too anxious. So there's a lot of wisdom. Yeah. We were a good team. Yeah. I'm, call him and then, you know. <sighs> so they come up. And we just got this little, you know, Johnsonville, we had this little butcher shop, you know, we have this little retail area. Yeah. And we're sitting in there and they're sitting there, we're sitting there together in this little retail. We don't have an office, we don't have anything, you know. No office stuff. And Jim Godfrey, 90 stores, Godfrey Company. So we'd like to do this. We're all done. And then Jim Godfrey says, Is there anything else you could do for us? And my dad says, didn't have to. The deal was done. He says, we'll give you an exclusive in Milwaukee. You know, I tried to grab the words before they got to him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. no what no, a no. smart question for that guy. To ask. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> it was brilliant at this point. Oh, no, Dan. No. I thought you were going to say we're going to give up our stores. No, no. Oh, gosh, no. no. That's why I do the line north of Plymouth. Yeah, yeah. Uh, to get started. Who knows what's going to happen, but that Plymouth store was a coal mine. So, dang, we're going to be good business. Next spring, Oscar Ward, the vice president of Mita operations for Pete Wiggle, another 80, 90 stores, but nothing in Milwaukee. It's perfect. You know? I couldn't have taken it in Milwaukee. Who <laughs> <Slow> serve? <laughs> Your God doesn't set this stuff up. He driving through. You have to see where Johnson is. You got to come off the railroad. You got to go around. I was just passing through. I saw I stopped and say hi. <laughs> you're just passing through. Right to where? Where were you passing through to? <laughs> Can't get anywhere from here. <laughs> so they wanted to carry our sausage. So we started up in the valley with them. And we are doing really good. Then we wanted to do a scene in Kenosha. And he said, you can do a scene in Kenosha. We gotta have it in Sheboygan too. So it's okay. And then I, I was done. I had a chat with Dad. Because Dad says, Oh, we can't do that. It'll destroy our store in Sheboygan. Well, then don't make a lot of money in that store. So all those stores is Oh, no, 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 no. Those stores put you through college, Ralph. I said, Yeah, and every night when I go to bed, I say, Thank you, stores. Thank you so much, stores, for putting me through college. <laughs> But they're the past, Dad. This is the future. And the father ended up empowering his son. And the son turned out to be right. And great job on that, Alex. And what a voice. Just a guy. It just sounds like a guy you might meet at a bar. And he is, actually. And we heard great stories about father and son And we love father-son stories and family stories. We heard earlier the son gleaning wisdom from the father who said, son, wait for them to call us. Don't be in a rush. And boy, that sounds like an older person telling a younger person because we're always in a rush when we're young. And yet at the same time, when confronted with the future of the business, the son pushed back at the dad. And in the end, where the future was going, where the future was, the son was right. And that's a unique father-son relationship where they can have that give and take. I think we all long for that. 
By the way, if you get a chance, listen to our On Leadership series with Ralph Steyer. A remarkable story in which Ralph confesses that he almost caused Johnsonville Sausages to go out of business because he was a selfish, sort of narcissistic boss. And one day, God got into his life. He got out of the way. And, well, all kinds of good things started happening when he gave credit to his people, gave power to his people, and just, well, just cheerleaded them on. Ralph Steyer's story, Johnsonville Sausage's story, here on Our American Stories. our American stories and we love talking sports here on our show and today we bring you the story of Chris Everett one of the best female tennis players to ever pick up a racket she was born on December 21st 1954 and we are going to hear from Chris herself and Faith brings us the story all of the players that I played were in tears on the court Frankie Durr was a wreck you know and and Leslie Hunt was was really pissed off. <laughs> I don't think we wanted to see anybody who was 16 years old outshine us. Part of the reason they resented her was when she was 16, she was, uh, you know, a, a little snippy. She didn't smile too much. She had her nose a tiny bit in the air then. All these other women are saying, why should we let this amateur play? She beats us and then she doesn't even take the prize money that we won. I think what Chris was kind of representing to us, that she could set us backwards if she won. See, if an amateur won and we just started the tour, what does that say about our tour? So it was, it was just difficult. I'm feeling all these emotions in the locker room. I'm thinking, they hate me. They're snubbing me. I was very intimidated by them. We had a meeting during the Open, and I said, we have to stop this. She's the greatest thing that's happened to women's tennis. She's going to be our next superstar. Those were some of the voices of the best female professional tennis players ever. But at the beginning of a tennis tour in North Carolina in the early 1970s, little Chrissy... Chris Everett, made her big debut. As a 15-year-old, she defeated reigning U.S. Open champion Margaret Court at this tournament. Everyone was stunned. She was so young and yet beginning to outshine those that had been competing as professionals for years. It was slightly embarrassing to say the least. But the mature ones, the professionals, who truly loved tennis grew to understand what she would do for the sport and for all female athletes. Little Chrissy Everett soon became known as Cinderella in sneakers and Little Miss Sunshine. At the young age of five, her father Jimmy Everett, a professional tennis player himself, began tennis lessons. Her dad made it fun for her. He wanted his daughter to have a hobby that she enjoyed. Everett told ESPN he'd say, okay, 10 over the net and I'll buy you a Coke. But, of course, no matter how encouraging a parent is, a child still wants to make their parent proud. You know, I think a lot of it is, is uh, wanting approval. Um, I know I, I played tennis for a long time for my father. You know, he was my coach and my inspiration, and I wanted to please him. Not that I didn't enjoy it. I did enjoy it. But for a long time, when I was a kid, 
you find an adult that uh, is willing to sacrifice a lot for that child and is their greatest supporter and hopefully they don't draw they don't cross the line into putting too much pressure on the kid I mean my dad never got mad at me when I lost a match let's put it that way so that that made me love him even more and want to do even better for him but it's also it's it's just a need inside and I'm not quite sure uh, I'm not quite sure it's a good thing it's a normal thing but it's that it's that hunger that need uh, you know to I guess to excel in one thing the fact that her dad never got mad at her when she lost was essential to her striving. And by the age of 10, she had started playing junior tennis. And by the age of 11, she was nationally ranked. By 1969, she was ranked number one in the U.S. for girls under 14. Because I played in the juniors, and it's not like all of a sudden at 18 I hit the pro circuit without any experience behind me or any hope. What happened was, you know, I started playing junior tennis when I was 10 years old, and when I was 11 or 12, I started winning 12 and under tournaments. When I was 14, I always was the best in my age group. And that sort of, that confidence builds. And then when you join the Pro Tour, when I joined the Pro Tour, my first pro match was when I was, I think when I was 13. I went three sets with the woman who was like number three in the country. When she was 13. Now, having your father as a coach is not something everyone can do. But she so admired and loved her father, it came easy. In fact, after winning Wimbledon at the age of 19, he was the first person she called. When the phone finally did ring, I heard this little voice at the other end of the line saying, I won. With that, I got all choked up and I couldn't speak. And the next thing I heard was, Dad, are you all right? <laughs> but can you imagine your 19-year-old daughter calling you from England and saying, hey, Dad, I just won Wimbledon. Every time I think about it, it still brings tears to my eyes. Chris became a pro at the age of 18 in 1971. She was ranked either number one or number two in the world from 1975 to 1986. That's a total of 260 weeks. Everett was also named the Associated Press Female Athlete of the Year four times. In 1974, 75, 77, and 1980. Now, Chris, she was different than her other competitors. Amidst the sass and mental breakdowns of many athletes of that age, Chrissy Everett kept her cool. So cool, in fact, that she was crowned Little Miss Icicle, or the Ice Maiden. Her competitors would flip off refs, throw towels, and throw fits. But not Chris. Full of grace and femininity, she played tennis as a lady. Not only that, but she was small and dainty. And not as strong as many other female athletes. Here she explains how her father helped her. My father, at a very young age, uh, had instilled in me, do not let your opponent see your emotions and see how you're feeling, because they'll use that fear. If they see a temper, they'll say, aha. So I was, that's why I was very the ice maiden and I think that frustrated a lot of opponents because they were trying to figure out you know what I was feeling and the other thing was I I am not of the mold of a Jimmy Connors or a Billie Jean King in the sense that you know I I didn't feel like a star out there I didn't feel like I had to entertain the crowds and and show my personality I was more I was a very introverted person. Everett went on from there to win 18 major championships that's the third greatest in women's history of tennis her main rival, Martina Navratilova, 
was her complete opposite. A bulky and intimidating Czechoslovakian, this rivalry is one that has gone down in history. 80 matches, 60 finals, 14 Grand Slams over 16 years with these two champions was epic. From 1975 to 1986, one of them was the number one. Without one another, they would never have become the athletes that they did. They would make each other cry practically every other weekend. Of course, with this rivalry and how early Chris started playing, there was some mounting pressure. She had shot out of the gates with such power and ability that people expected much of her. And Martina had gotten really good. Well, I'll tell you, Martina, after she took over number one, she beat me 13 times in a row, and I was a mental case. After a while, it was when I walked down the court, I was beaten. It's like, I'm going to lose this match, you know? But that was 13 times in a row. Then the 14th time I beat her in a tournament floor, then the 15th time was, well, it's not the 15th, but the, the second time after that was the French Open when I did beat her. Fear of losing drove me. I mean, it was not the thrill of winning. It was... But maybe because I, I had been number one for some time and I knew everybody was gunning for me, so after a while I was playing not to lose. Chris was the first male or female tennis player to win 1,000 single matches and compiled the second most career match wins of 1,309. Everett retired after 17 years, having won 92% of her matches. An astounding number. Best in history, male or female. For one 13-year run, she won at least one Grand Slam title. But with all of these accomplishments, it wasn't until she had a child of her own that she found more meaning in her life. I tell you what, winning Wimbledon was the greatest experience for about a day or two. I mean, you're on a high. It doesn't carry over. I mean, the next month you're on to St. Louis playing a tournament. You're not riding on that exhilaration. Having a child for me is joy 24 hours of the day. You know, I love, I mean, I, I, I found my niche. I feel like I'm a mother, you know, and I feel like I'm a, a, I really enjoy being a mother. And even with the blessing and love of her children, she knows that even they will not always be with her. Here's Chris Evert, one of the most successful athletes of all time, sharing some of the deepest and most vulnerable reflections of her life. My, I feel like there's a, there's a niche that I haven't quite found. And it could be a spiritual niche. I, I'm not quite sure. I can't pinpoint what it is. But I'm not, you know, I've, I've, there's something else out there for me that's, that's going to take place, you know, when my kids are in school and, and I'm going to look around and, and see, hey, you know, I've got all this free time on my hands. What is important to me? What really, what do I want to do? Billie Jean and I have talked a lot about that because she's, she turned 50 last year. And she's uh, all of a sudden the last year to really, it's hit her, you know, the spiritual, you know, she's really evolving and, and very happy and at peace with herself. And, and uh, I think it takes a long time to find that. I think it takes a long time, whether you're in your 40s, 50s, 60s, whatever. And I haven't, I haven't quite pinpointed it and found it yet. You know, because I've been a tennis player, I've been a wife, I've been a mom, but I know there's something else for Chris. This is Faith Garcia reporting to you from Our American Stories. And thanks, as always, for that, Faith. And Faith also did a terrific piece on Babe Didrichsen Zaharias, 
And you can hear that and all of our storytelling at OurAmericanNetwork.org. I was a huge Chris Everett fan. My brother was a serious tennis player. I got to see her at the U.S. Open back when it was at Queens and it was grass tennis. And one of the pleasures of my life seeing her. What a polite lady. And my goodness, the ice queen, you bet. Nothing, nothing. She showed nothing. The great champion, a mom, and a searcher. Chris Everett's story. Here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. And for the hour, we're going to tell you a story. And it starts like this. Adolf Hitler is dead. The Third Reich, which he built, it lasted just 12 years. But his calculated butchery of human lives and human spirit surpassed anything this earth has ever seen. How did it happen that an ancient and cultured people steeped in Christianity and the arts and sciences, preeminent in modern technology, collapsed into savage barbarism in the 20th century. To seek the answers, we must follow the Germans and the rise of their leader. Because on this day in history in 1945, Hitler descended into his bunker. Evil and chaos can have gentle beginnings. It is in the backwater countryside of northern Austria where Adolf Hitler is born on April 20th, 1889. He's the third child of the third marriage of an Austrian customs official. He's the first of the children to live. Past 50, his father, Alois, is a harsh and restless man. Three of his seven children are conceived out of wedlock. Adolf's young mother, Clara, who is also his father's niece, is the life of Adolf's existence. She is a very sweet, hard-working, and deeply religious Catholic who will forever remain his warmest memory. As a boy, a teacher observes that young Adolf has limited talent, is lazy and bad-tempered, and arrogantly fancies himself a leader. Adolf is just 13 years old when his father dies in 1903. At 18, with boundless confidence and a portfolio of schoolboy sketches, Young Hitler sets out to conquer Vienna. Certain his talent will open all doors, Hitler applies for admission to the Academy of Fine Arts, but he will walk its corridors only as a visitor. In a shattering and unexpected blow, he is rejected. I'm sorry, Herr Hitler, you don't have a style. Your people are like little buildings, there's no life in them. Perhaps if you tried architecture or theatrical design, I'm truly sorry, I have a chance to teach. Best of luck. Then, just four years after his father's passing, Adolf's mother dies of breast cancer. All alone, Adolf Hitler sinks into a world of drifters and nobodies. Unwashed and gaunt, he sells an occasional crude painting around town for next to nothing, while living in flop houses and in the streets. Hitler didn't have a plan B when he was rejected. 
he just didn't know what to do, so he started to, to drift. He had very little money. He was living in a hand-to-mouth existence. He had no clear aim in life at all. He was, in a sense, waiting for something to happen. Among Vienna's discontented subculture, right. Hitler's heartache finds echoes throughout the streets. It's the Jews for me, you know. Swarm into our country, steal the bread from our tables. Just ask our mayor. They are wolves. Beasts of prey in human form. For the first time, Hitler senses the uses of heat the explosive political force stored in the resentments and fears of the masses. His own hates are many. The intermarriage with non-Germans, parliamentary government, inferior races, and of course, the Jews. Anti-Semitism has always existed in European society, but in Hitler, it becomes all-consuming. It's all their fault, you know. They swarm into our country, take the food from our mouths, here we are, German and hungry. Early on, he begins reciting anti-Semitic platitudes to anyone on the streets who will listen. In 1913, Hitler leaves Vienna for the German fatherland, Munich. I'm off with the real Germans, huh? The harsh, brooding newcomer is out of place. Munich is the boisterous German land of beer and pretzels, but not for long. On August 1st, 1914, a huge enthusiastic crowd, including the misfit outsider Adolf Hitler, gathers in Munich Plaza, the occasion to celebrate Germany's entry into World War I. England, France and Russia are joining forces against our ally Austria. We must stand with her, united, ready to sacrifice. Germany has finally given Hitler what he's always longed for, a place to belong. I fell down on my knees, Hitler writes in Mein Kampf, and thanked heaven for being permitted to live at this time. With the advent of the machine gun, war begins producing epic numbers of casualties. Here's retired U.S. Army General Stanley McChrystal explaining World War I's trench warfare. They found that if they dug even shallow trenches and used machine guns, a small number of troops could stop a large attacking force. And then both sides started to dig trenches. And so they were locked along this line, the Western Front, which was this extraordinarily complex set of trenches that didn't move very much either way. The trenches cover 25,000 miles. Laid end to end, they would circle the globe. Two days after Germany's war declaration, Hitler joins the German army and becomes stationed in the trenches. The open area in between the trenches is so deadly, it's known as no man's land. Hitler becomes a dispatch runner, whereby he leaves the safety of his company's trench in order to deliver messages through the body-littered no man's land and into the nearby German trenches. But after months on the front lines, Hitler is still seen as an outcast. Hitler was regarded by the other troops as something of a loner, something of a rather peculiar eccentric. 
person who kept it to himself. But what Hitler lacks in popularity, he makes up for in blind ambition. This has to get through as soon as possible. We don't have much time left. It's dangerous. Either of you makes it. We'll deserve an iron cross. Yes. Go with God. This is Lee Habib, and on this day in history, and on this day in history, in 1945, Hitler descends into his bunker. This is Our American Stories, Adolf Hitler, his youth and his rise to power for the hour. And yes, it's not an American story, as I indicated earlier, but it's a story that impacted not just America, but the world. And but for America, our GIs, our industrial capacity, who knows what the world would look like? It's almost inconceivable. Hitler's role as a messenger was actually considered perhaps the most dangerous task in trench warfare. Running from trench to trench, exposing himself to enemy fire, the uh, mortality rate for messengers was quite significant. Then this mind-crushing whopper of a what-if moment occurs on the battlefield. Andy has Adolf Hitler in his sights. And even though he's a trained soldier, he can't bring himself to pull the trigger. If Tandy had pulled the trigger, Adolf Hitler would have died on the battlefields in World War I. And the whole course of human history would have been changed. It's one of the great what-ifs in history. Years of trench warfare transform Adolf Hitler from a directionless loner to a hardened soldier, and is now certain he can withstand anything the Allied forces throw his way. The gas attacks are endless. To Hitler, they've become routine, but this time, it's different. The Allies hit the Germans with a deadly new form of chemical warfare, mustard gas. Mustard gas affects the central nervous system. It creates mustard-colored blisters on the skin. It blinds people. It strips away the mucous membranes. It's incredibly painful uh, and debilitating. And since it had no odor, by the time you realized that you had inhaled it and it was on your skin, it was too late. On October 14, 1918, Hitler becomes one of the victims of a British mustard gas attack. Then less than a month later, after four years of continuous fighting and 37 million casualties, Germany surrenders. While most of the world celebrates the end of the fighting, one unknown 29-year-old man, Gentlemen. recovering at a military hospital, I have your attention. hears the news. 
I have an important announcement to make. Earlier today, the Army High Command agreed to negotiate the terms of surrender. War is over. No! We must place ourselves now at the mercy of the victors. Pray they will be generous. It is the end. Hitler took the surrender personally. A personal, uh, destructive blow to himself. He also took it as a mission. A mission in life to avenge and rectify this surrender. While the fighting has stopped, the pressure is on the United States and their fellow Allied victors to come to an agreement on how to prevent war from ever breaking out again. The leaders of each Allied country, including the President of the United States, Woodrow Wilson, gather at the Palace of Versailles in France. After six months of intense negotiations, the resolution falls on Germany, forcing them to pay $80 billion the modern equivalent of nearly half a trillion dollars, a debt they won't pay off until 2010. Germany immediately is struggling with a question of survival. For ordinary Germans, uh, the war did not end in November 1918. For ordinary Germans, the battle for survival, the daily struggle for food, the effort to find shoes and clothing stretched on into the 1920s. As anger and starvation spread, tensions rise throughout the country. Radical factions struggle to win over the hearts and minds of the populace. The communists and the socialists battle daily in the streets. Who will be able to best exploit this national crisis? Hitler becomes an informer for the demobilized German army and is assigned to infiltrate one of the many socialist factions. One of these groups is the German Workers' Party, led by a man called Anton Drexler. They gather in the back room of a beer hall. Just an excuse to have a drink, I expect, but pay them a visit and tell me what they're planning. But don't drink, sir. Just listen, then. But interest. The German Workers' Party is an insignificant group of pessimistic and defeated men, passing the time in a beer hall while delivering uninspired speeches and rhetorical platitudes about racial superiority and social reform. Than to declare Bavarian independence. Hitler tries to remain in the background, but is unable to restrain his impassioned tongue. You were talking about the purity of the German people. Just no fairy tale. As I was saying... This burst of inspiration was not lost on the party's leader, Anton Drexler. Drexler asks Hitler to speak at their next meeting on October 16, 1919. Many of you may remember him by his comments at our last meeting. So please welcome Herr Adolf, Adolf Hitler. But the party attendees are more interested in their beer and getting lost in their thoughts. When I was a boy, I heard the story louder. Our military is in tatters. Our economy collapsing. 
But it's not poverty or weakness that's our problem. It's indifference. Is anyone listening? That's the problem nowadays, isn't it? No one cares. No wonder we face extinction. This is the 321 liftoff moment for Adolf Hitler and what would soon become known as the Nazi Party. To be used against In just five months, the German Workers' Party expands quickly. They change the name to the National Socialist Party, or Nazi for short. Our enemies live among us. Under Hitler's leadership, membership in the National Socialist Party quickly expands as Hitler experiences his first taste of real power. The, foreign invaders the media love the charismatic speaker and begin printing his stories. In the six months since the over the, the next two decades, Adolf Hitler will seduce the media all over the world. Even in the United States, Time magazine awards him their Man of the Year in 1938. The party of the National Socialists, whose fiery speaker Adolf Hitler preaches against the influence of foreign invaders. Who alone are responsible for the moral decadence that now riddles our society? The Jews! The Jews! Yes! Who call themselves German, but who are now and who have always been unwelcome, unwanted, and they are everywhere! Stripping us of our savings, raping our families and our heritage. I tell you, friends, this is war. A war that is soon to turn, for the invaders will become the victims. As the National Socialist Party grows, agitators from rival political factions pour into their meetings in order to disrupt them. They shout down Hitler and start fights. He needs protection. But we need more men like you in the party. Adolf finds muscle in a military official, Ernst Röhm. Röhm is made commander of the Storm Battalion, or SA, the Nazi party's militia. But before this can happen, Röhm points out the obvious. If my men can crush a revolution, they can also create one. Because they love this country as much as you or I do. Yes. The only little problem is they're unemployed. Yes. And when we come back, more on Adolf Hitler and his rise to power. This is Our American Stories for the Hour. Hitler.
This is Our American Stories, and we last left off with Adolf Hitler struggling to finance his National Socialist Party. Let's pick up from there. I know some people who would love to hear you speak, who are not likely to go to a beer hall. The wealthy. I've met a few. Armchair politicians care more about their money than they do their own country. Yes, but surely as your party's propaganda leader, you must know that in order to defend their money, they'll spend it, a good deal of it. That is, if someone they trust tells them it's a safe bet. That's where I come in. Herr Hitler. Hitler turns to the Harvard-educated American businessman Ernst Homstingel. Homstingel and his wife Helena introduce Hitler to Munich High Society and help polish his image. Why don't you have a poster? And a flag. Your picture should be everywhere, with your name in large letters. You might consider a more distinctive look. For example, when you think of Lenin, you think of bearded and bald. Not that that's attractive, but... Well, it does stick with you. Soon after, Ernst and Helena invite Hitler to speak to a room of influential Germans. It's here where Adolf will meet the future commander of the Nazi Air Force, Hermann Goering. To cast all Germany under his spell, Hitler needs an image that will burn into the minds of millions. Nowadays we'd call it a logo, of course. It was designed personally by Hitler, and it may be that he put some of his artistic impulses into this. The essential part of it ultimately went back to India, but it was taken up as a symbol of racism and anti-Semitism combined with the red background for socialism and the red, white and black colors for the old Kaiserweiss. Hitler's artistic creation is known as the swastika. Hitler unveils his new flag to a group of wealthy German influentials. I brought something I want you all to see. Simple. Aryan. What does it mean? It means the unconquerable. Goering is visibly impressed. The rest are frozen. Tell us, Herr Hitler, have you considered publishing? The meeting is a success. Hitler can now fund Rome's SA police force and begin to push out party propaganda en masse. The Nazi Party newspaper is also launched in 1920. May God and the people of Germany be with us. On November 8, 1923, in what will become known as the Beer Hall Putsch, Hitler leads his Nazis into a Munich Beer Hall, where top government officials are meeting. The German Revolution begins tonight! Threatened at gunpoint, the government leaders reluctantly agree to support Hitler's new regime. Then Hitler and his 3,000 Nazis swiftly march into the Munich streets to take the city by force. There's an armed group heading towards the barracks. His entourage includes Hofstingel, Goering, his future deputy Führer Rudolf Hess, along with Rom and his SA soldiers. But 100 German police are prepared. Sixteen Nazis and three policemen are killed. Hurry up, 
Göring is shot in the groin. Hitler suffers a dislocated shoulder when the man he locks arms with is shot and pulls him down onto the pavement. Hitler's bodyguards take several bullets after jumping on top of the fallen Hitler, saving his life. Hitler scrambles along the sidewalk out of the line of fire and crawls into a waiting car. Go! Drive! Hitler's attempt to seize power fails. I know a safe place. Turn right up ahead. Desperate, suicidal, and still armed with his pistol. The injured Hitler seeks refuge in Hofstingel's home, just outside of Munich. Hofstingel's wife, Helena, dissuades Hitler from committing suicide as the police come to arrest him. He's arrested and charged with treason. With the collapse of the Nazi revolution, Adolf Hitler. Hitler's political career and the Nazi movement has come to a crashing, almost laughable end. How do you plead? Guilty. Hitler uses his trial as a personal forum to publicize his worldview to the German nation. You have been accused of high treason and called an enemy of the state. If a thief takes your money and you take it back, does that make you also a thief? The courtroom quickly becomes a stage, and Hitler is its hero protagonist. In 1918, we were betrayed by the November criminals, the ones who claimed to be our leaders. They entered the war, signed the Treaty of Versailles, and that was high treason. This is supposed to be an interrogation, not a speech. The judge is visibly impressed by Hitler's response to the prosecutor. If I am guilty of anything, then I am guilty of fighting to defend the rights of the German people. Fascinating, isn't he? After 24 days of deliberation, Hitler's fate rests in the hands of the judge. Herr Hitler, court finds you guilty of treason. Yes. Hereby sentenced to a fine of 200 gold marks and five years in Landsberg prison. You will, you will be eligible for parole in nine months. It's a slap on the wrist. Hitler has turned defeat into triumph. The provincial troublemaker is now a national hero. This way, please. Hey, Hitler. Uh, Hitler spends all his eight months as a celebrated guest in prison. Yes, sir. And if I may say so, sir, it's an honor to serve you. Plotting his next move with Nazi cellmate Rudolf Hess, who volunteers his time in prison to be Hitler's secretary. Welcome, my Führer. Well, it's lovely, isn't it? Only two things missing, an audience and an income. Perhaps I'll write a memoir. What do you think? I think it's an excellent idea. Good. 
then only the publisher. To gain followers and to spread his message, the 35-year-old Hitler creates a manifesto. Financed and published by the Harvard-educated Hofstingel, the heart of which is a radical plan for world domination. He titles it Mein Kampf, or My Struggle. On December 20th, 1924, Hitler is free. But now Hitler's twisted socialist crusade is stopped by the adversary he fears most. Good times have come to Germany. Rebellions have faded, the inflation halted, the country is back to work, and the hardships and humiliations of defeat are fading. And when we come back, the final installment on this hour on Adolf Hitler, his youth, his early years, and his rise to power, here on Our American Stories, and we've done very few stories of people who aren't Americans. Hitler is one, Churchill is another. And when we come back, the end of the story. We left off with Hitler and his Nazi party confronting the opponent that all socialist movements fear most of all, good times, economic prosperity. And this period of prosperity is known today as the Roaring Twenties. Let's pick up from there. Then, on October 29th, 1929, after a decade of post-World War I prosperity, the New York Stock Exchange suffers the most catastrophic crash it will ever see, losing over $14 billion in just one day. The crash launches a heartbreaking era for America, the Great Depression. The fallout quickly spreads throughout the world, but one of the countries taking the biggest hit is Germany. Hitler will not let this national crisis go to waste, Unemployment increased so dramatically that it opened the door for radical movements to gain support. It was the Great Depression that made Hitler possible. Hitler believes he can rally the desperate people around his vision of a new powerful Germany, setting in motion a plan he first described in his manifesto, Mein Kampf. What we must fight for is to safeguard the existence and the reproduction of our race and our people. Mein Kampf is enormously significant. It provided a kind of outline for all the things that Hitler wanted to do eventually. Hitler clearly believed passionately from the start of his career right to the end that the Jews were the world enemy who intended to destroy Germany. Paranoid fantasy of his. 
he believed he was chosen by destiny to rescue Germany. We must reverse the Treaty of Versailles. Hitler recruits new members to his party and tours the country giving impassioned speeches and distributing various forms of Nazi propaganda. What the Nazis did was to project an image of energy, vigor, youth, determination in the service of Germany. They're constantly marching through the streets with banners, there's constant speeches, meetings, huge activity. And this projects this image of that they're going to do something. All the other parties are just wasting their time talking. We're actually going to do something. If the nation does its duty, then the day will come which restores to us one right in honor and freedom. Hitler's speeches had some kind of unique power. He served as a lightning rod for all the discontent in Germany. He managed to focus it and channel it and uh, become it. Within a few years, the National Socialist Party is transformed from a fringe organization into a growing political movement. Hitler's Nazi party quickly holds the largest numbers of seats in parliament. The Nazi strongmen come not to debate, but to end debate. The government comes to a standstill. Now, with widespread support, Hitler's dream is finally within his grasp. He has won his countrymen by demands for action. Now they expect action. He has promised a new Germany. Now they want it. The evangelist of hate has become the prophet of hope. Moderate parties try to remind the public of Hitler's long-standing promise that when he gains power, heads will roll. It is a campaign promise Hitler fully intends to keep. Do you solemnly swear to carry out the obligations of the office of Chancellor? Just as Franklin Delano Roosevelt is first elected president of the United States in 1933, the faltering, senile German president Hindenburg hands Hitler a ceremonial position in the government as Chancellor of Germany, hoping to pacify his Nazi movement. But in the slippery business of double-dealing, Hitler proves the master. Immediately following the ceremony, 20 million people across Germany tune in to this radio broadcast. Hitler's largest audience ever. Germans, my people, party members, rich and poor, city and country, the educated and knowing, and the ignorant. The task of politics is not to represent just one faction. Rather, the task of politics must be to overcome these divisions for a greater good. Die 
Nein! In our hands alone! Liegt die Zukunft! Lies the destiny of the German people! In these hands! In these hands! The words of the speech are unimportant, oft-repeated platitudes, but the level at which they ignite passion, loyalty, and obedience is sorcery. After this speech, the Nazi party is flooded with so many membership requests, they have to suspend admissions. Then, just two weeks after being named the chancellor, someone sets fire to the German parliament building called the Reichstag. A giddy Hitler, who never claims responsibility, arrives on scene and feigns outrage. This, this is a signal from God. We are under siege, the terrorists have opened fire, and we will fire back. It's good to see him so happy. This is an outrageous crime, and someone will answer. Hitler calls an emergency meeting of the Reichstag. In order for the government, to carry out necessary procedures against terrorism, Reichstag must support an enabling act. This act is your opportunity to hand power over those that can wield it most effectively. From now on, all legislation will be handled by the administration, which will have sole right to make constitutional changes. Freedoms of speech, association, and the press are temporarily suspended. Privacy rights in relation to telephone and postal communication are revoked. I will take any refusal as a statement of opposition. Gentlemen, you must decide. Will it be peace or war? Deutschland, Deutschland, über alles, über alles in der Welt. They approve the Enabling Act, which effectively turns Germany into a police state, with Hitler as their absolute ruler. In what will become known as the Night with the Long Knives, Hitler begins arresting German citizens by the thousands and eliminates nearly 100 of his political enemies, including media figures and reporters. Who is your source? Even his own SA commander, Ernst Röhm. Hi, Führer. And so in his honor, I will bring you all into the Reichswehr army. Rome's SA are replaced with two million Hitler-controlled SS guards. In one move, Adolf Hitler has taken complete control of the government and is now supreme leader of Germany's 67 million citizens. A time of peace and prosperity awaits us. The thousand-year Reich has begun. Sieg Hitler! It is the 28th of March, 1933. Adolf Hitler has been dictator for five days. Even so, 
Unless you openly oppose the Nazis, your life goes on as before. But for many, this was about to change. We are having lunch with a law professor and his wife. They are both Jewish. The amazing thing is that this clever, charming woman is not at all opposed to the Nazis. On the contrary, she lectures us on the outstanding qualities of Adolf Hitler, on the greatness of the age which we are allowed to witness, on the national rebirth. And she is firmly convinced that no harm whatsoever will come to educated Jews in Germany. And there you have it, Hitler's rise to power. And so convincing was he that even some intellectual Jews bought the story. And this is Our American Stories. Great job on that, Greg, as always. And we'll play this many times every year.